Welcome to episode 15. 15 is my limit on Schnitzengruben. <laughs> that was a quote from Madeline Kahn from Blazing was Saddles. Did she say? I thought it was she the was dude in the bathtub that said no, that. No, no, it was Madeline Kahn and she was like as, uh, oh gosh, she's the Lily von Stupp. Was the character, oh, but she was playing basically Marlena Dietrich. Okay, remember well, you're the only person in the planet that knows. And she what the says hell you're the the about. big guy. She says, "Here, Heinz are a big sausage," and says, oh, "Would really? you like some more Schnitzengruben?" She said, "15's my limit on Schnitzengruben." That's really, really, really inappropriate. I know, inappropriate. Um, so and now I, don't, I have never even seen the movie. It's just you have infected me with these insane I know, sayings. I know very much. So t- a diet of too much. Twenty five years of too many dead. Benny jokes. Hill. Um. <laughs> so 15, episode 15, who was our guest, Kate <sighs> Atkins? One of my first teenage crushes, uh, Murray White. Murray White. Yes, yeah. and actually we've interviewed him for the previous podcast with DJ and I, but yes. I can't remember if it made it to air. Oh, really? Slackers. Yeah. But it was. I think it was a, a better interview at any rate. And Murray has had a lot of time to reflect since. Yeah. And it was a um, such a good interview, and he's such the like he's the original. All these dudes with their sleeve tats and beards are just trying to be him, and he's the one. Sorry, Joel. No, Joel. Well, he's got sleeve tats and beards. Yeah, but Joel's talented as well. Like you know, I'm talking about the other lot. Yes. No, it's it's cool, and uh, the whole trading a regular life in for you know doing what you want to do is amazing. (laughs) Yeah, and the like, and also how he sort of was like, uh, Hong Kong got exhausting, and you know, like it was, it was just very it, the whole thing, and the talk, all those stories about trying to pretend to not be a photographer in secret squirrel locations and stuff. It was really cool. It was yeah. a really cool interview. Mm, glad you liked he's it. He's a he's an amazing photo- amazing photographer. Yeah. So please head across to his website. Which yeah. the link will be in the show notes. And we have some beautiful photos he took of me and my sister when we were very young. Yeah, yeah. We were like, I was like 12 or 13. Oh, God. 12 or 13? That was, that was the sound of teenagers. We're not going to get interviewed. We're not going to get interrupted again. I no, have we'll to do the, put the... And <laughs> <laughs> so, um, how was your week, Kate? <coughs> what well, happened this week with Kate? What happened this week with Kate? Um... So I've been, as we've discussed before, struggling a bit uh, and the we had a bit of drama this week in Australia with um, Melbourne getting locked down again and I've found that all to be a bit scary and icky and my mum used to live in Melbourne and so she has a lot of friends there and they're, and they're all really high-risk people. And, and in high-density areas, are yeah, they? Yeah, well, not so much, but they're all feeling really... Just like this, this second time round is real not nice. Like quite a different feeling than the first time round. It feels a lot scarier for them. Oh, everyone thought, "Yay, we've beat this!" And like, yeah, I know. So don't so be a drama llama, says Barack Obama. Oh fuck! Really, really? I know. You, you're really scraping the bottom of <laughs> the keeping it up barrel right so, there. <laughs> so tell me, come on. <laughs> so come what on. I'm trying to say? Let's stop fucking rushing me. Listen. Let me take my time and validate my feelings, motherfucker. That is your job. That is the only job. And you're singing fucking Russian songs. This is why. If anybody's wondering why Kate has had a therapist for her entire goddamn life, this is why. Because I live with this fool. I'm Russian you. Oh, God. 
I'm sorry. <laughs> What's your quarter of dad jokes on, for the first 15 minutes of this fucking show? Talk. I'm sorry, it's my fault. So, I'm trying to get, eventually this will actually lead to a compliment for you if you could keep your trap shut for long enough. Mr. Chatty Bear the over there. What's your compliment I get? Mr. fucking Chatty Bear. So, I have been feeling decidedly overwhelmed. Do you fucking roll your eyes at me? Decidedly overwhelmed and a bit shit. And so I was really struggling to get over this huge pile of emails, like 170 emails. And they were all just sitting there festering one after another, just festering. How how old was the oldest? I'm not going to tell you that. You know how old it was. No, I don't it's remember. embarrassing I don't how remember. old it was. It was like a year and a bit old. Okay. Well, I'm sure everybody's in the same boat. Well, I don't know. So I I, I used to do this thing where I would have my email would be like my to-do list. So I would have like my – this is what I need to do is just I need to do everything that's in my email. So I would send myself like, you know, pick up tomatoes or something into my email and then I would you – know, tomatoes would go on a list. But, you know, like make an appointment or whatever. And that's fine if you can get everything done every time, but if you can't actually get all the things in your list done, it doesn't work. You end up just actually failing all the time and everything just sliding further and further down the swamp-like email. And the problem with the uh, email inbox is someone else is controlling it. They're putting stuff in it. I mean, metaphorically someone else. Anyone can email you and that adds to your inbox. Yes, and then I just... Uh, you know, you are so organised and you have your little OmniFocus app and I was like, I just, I reached the bottom. I, I hit bottom, honey. Oh, I hit sweet. email bottom. My poor baby. You're, gonna, you're not going to turn that into a butt joke? Oh, I can. <laughs> not now. <laughs> I'm, not not now. I'm, not, I'm feeling sad for you. No, no, no it was because shit. Hang on, hang on. You said you're, it's the, hang on, just be really clear here. I see the word inbox as a metaphor for stuff you have to do regardless. Because you said someone gives you a job to do, like a task, you'll email yourself a reminder. So you're using your email inbox as a inbox for stuff you have to do, like an in-tray on your desk. Yeah. It's, it's just adding to it. Now, you've got a physical in-tray because our lovely, wonderful staff stick things on Yeah, but no one, no one uses notes. it because I ignore it. <laughs> That's why your door is so beautifully decorated. That's right. And now I ignore that too as well. The only way that people get me to do things is actually to like come in and yell at me and then I do it. Um, I'm a terrible, terrible employee really. I think you're a great employee. I don't know. I reckon I reckon you would have fired me by now had I. Oh, <laughs> I reckon you would have gone, you know what, you're completely unorganised. We're fucking out. Go. Yeah. So anyway, I- so what happened? You came and you sat with me and you were lovely and you – went through my inbox and you put everything into OmniFocus and it was really cool because now my inbox is <clears throat> my email inbox is like there's nothing in it except for the odd Would thing. Would you say quote unquote inbox zero? Well no one knows what that Trademark means. Trademark Man. No one knows exactly what that means because no one listens to Merlin Man. Do I have us. to add that to the show notes? Trademark yes, you do. inbox zero. Yes you do. And um, getting a pen. <clears throat> so Omni and I add OmniFocus, which is my little app that I'm using to to create projects, and then I can assign them to what days I'm going to do them on, and I can tick things off, and I get like a sense of achievement and doneness, and I don't have like this sea of fucking emails looking at me, and nothing's getting done. So it was good, but we were going to have a surprise party, weren't we? Oh, For maybe. you, old man, you. Yes, that was the plan. How on old Friday are you? Night. Well, I'm not. Am I it now? 
No, darling. I meant in you two days. Yeah, it. but when the show comes out. No, the show will come out today. Yeah. It's the 11th. Yeah. On the... No, it's the 12th. Fuck. Ooh. Who cares? On the 14th of July. Yes. Bastille Day. Everyone yes. take notice. Write the day it down. of the Bastille. Write it down. <laughs> send yeah. me, send me Write it down. <laughs> Write it down and send him a message. Yes, I'm because 50. I'm fifty. You're fifty. The big five o. A big five o. I'm Hawaii five o. Everybody over fifty right now is enjoying that reference. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you're an old man, and yeah. I just feel so young. It's like really great. I have to say, you, we are younger than me. Yeah. I really like having an older husband. <laughs> Feeling a bit broken at the moment. Oh, sweetheart. No, it's good. We were going to have a surprise party. Yeah, but, but we cancelled it. Yeah, because the rain has gone to shit. Because we were concerned about, you know, we, there was a chance that maybe 30, 40. Well, we haven't could got any along. cases in Adelaide and we haven't had any for weeks, but it's, <clears throat> it just became a not a good feeling anymore. And it all just kind of felt like this is a bad. It all, it, it all happened re- like we went, yes, I went. Yes, let's do the surprise party. We're fine. And then 24 hours, basically, I had of messaging everybody going, come and make a surprise for my husband because it looks like we're all, Australia's all okay. And Australia felt like it was all okay. And then within 24 hours, it was like Melbourne's locking down. The the, the apartment blocks are like like prisons. The, the military's being sent to the border. And I was just like sobbing in the corner <laughs> as it all fell apart. I knew nothing. And, and so, then I had to message so, everyone and go, it's all over. Yeah, which is really sad. But I was really, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I would love to have had the party, but I'm not a big party person and and I think it would have made me worried. I mean, of course, that's a good thing about surprise party. You don't have to think too much about it before. And as a surprisee, the person getting surprised. Correct. Uh, but I've had the benefit of the thought that everyone would, may have come along. Oh, and this is why <laughs> you, you are the sweetest it. man alive, and that so you are so happy that somebody even thought to do it. I know, it's very cool. You're very funny. You, you're very sweet. But that's cool. But I was so happy about the fact, because you and I talked about it, OmniFocus, and I've been using it, oh, I don't know, it's got to be more than 10 years. And, and you are so fastidiously organised, it yeah, drives me nuts. And I, I wrote a series of blog posts called Surviving a Busy Life, and we put them out on our email It was forever newsletter. ago, but we're going to yeah. revamp that. Yeah, I, it was interesting because I I was so uh, annoyingly evangelical about it. I think I really turned you off of it. Yes, you did. Uh, but I, I don't do well with being told what to do. I don't know if yeah. you've noticed. <laughs> I have noticed funny enough. And I don't I, – I find routine makes me want to cry. Like I'm a bit of a moody bitch, so like I kind of want to do what I feel like doing often – and the problem with all of that, aside from the obvious, is that I sometimes then end up sitting at my desk kind of going, oh, I, don't, I don't think I've got anything to do. Oh, I know. I'll go on Pinterest <laughs> <laughs> or whatever. And then I do stuff that I feel like doing. And then I've actually, it's not that I don't have anything to do. It's just all the stuff I have to do is so far away. I can't even remember what the fuck it is. And... Then I end up falling behind and then I have this thing that my daughter has, which is the last minute itis, which is that's when I get all the sort of, as my therapist would say, the psychic energy to get myself to do all this shit I don't want to do. Because everybody and everybody, it's not like I have a bad job. I have a great job. But we all have crap we have to deal with in our lives, like bloody medical bills or fixing an insurance thing or getting a whatever. We've all got that crap. It's about assigning 
when you're going to do those awful things and sprinkling a bit of the good stuff in there around it and then feeling more in control of it and less like everybody is coming in to yell at me and tell me what to do all the time and more like I can just sit here and plod through all this crap with my podcast on and I can handle it. Yeah, so yeah. I just so, feel a lot more in control of it all. But, you know, to all of you who are emailing me this week and don't hear a reply for a <laughs> month, <laughs> you'll know that it's all gone to shit. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one of those things. And, and uh, I find I use it better and worse at different times of the year and, and I think I go through cycles of how I can – because the premise is getting things done, which is a book by David Allen, which we'll put in the show notes as well. Uh, and I have read the book, but it's it's in fact it's funny. It's a book where you read like the first chapter, and then you give up reading it because you're too busy implementing, and you get so excited. Oh my and god! And you read another chapter, and you you're go getting back evangelical to, again. Yeah, it's really annoying. And um, uh, but OmniFocus is an app that was built on that I've been as a running my stuff. It's a really cool idea. I don't know whether we should talk about it on the podcast at all. At some no, stage. we're going to do a different thing. But I think there's a lot of stuff actually to do with procrastination which is something i i find a lot of creatives struggle with and actually there's an amazing ologies podcast you know ologies i love ologies she's the best if only i could be a poofteenth of cool that she is I would be a happy person. She's redonkulously cool. The woman who hosts that. But then the show notes. Yes, the Ology podcast about the procrastination professor, a procrastination guy, is amazing. And I think there is some really deep seated um, uh, psychological issues around why we don't do certain things. And for me, it is like this desire to just be a kid. I just want to sit in. I want to sit in my room. I want to eat chips and I want to play computer games, and I want to pretend that that doesn't ruin my life. It means that I have nothing to do. And, you know, I have no job. I have no life. I have no family, and I turn into a big fat slob who sits in the corner and just eats potato chips and plays computer games. So there is a little part of me that I have to constantly have this conversation with this little whiny little bitch who doesn't want to pick her clothes up and doesn't want to brush her teeth and doesn't want to eat vegetables. Have and you given it a name? No, but I probably should. Like but you see my therapist, like see my therapist is a Jungian <laughs> therapist. So she does all Jungian stuff. So then it's like, it's, it's just, she would have a different take on it, but it is this weird little thing in me, this little creature that just wants to do this stupid stuff. And I indulge it every now and then in that, you know, chips are a thing and video games. We've already talked about my issues around that, but it is also a, the, for me, what was really powerful was like going, okay, I know how to control whiny little bitch kids like i know how to deal with that so i just need to control my inner whiny little bitch so with procrastination because it's a it's a good topic and we must we must um, i know because we're at 1507 1507. yeah i can see your little eyeballs going i I was just thinking about procrastination like we are speaking to a lot of creatives out there and procrastination and a lot of them will be perfectionists are you Suffering from perfectionism mm. as well. Yeah, where yeah, you can't, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this Don't whole idea... Don't want to start it because I know I'll fuck it up. This whole idea of, oh, this is why the next... The one after Murray White, and my guest after Murray White is Jeff Morefoot. Mm. You guys have now. to listen to Jeff. Yeah, it is. You, oh, no, it's <laughs> going to be Luke Simon, isn't it? Yeah, it's going to be Luke Simon, you dickhead. Okay, yeah, any rate, perfectionism is a terrible thing. It is a terrible, terrible thing. You see, thing. even when you say that, I'm like, hang on a minute, that's how you get it good. 
No, you, d- you do it and then mm, you make it better. Done is better than perfect. Done is better than perfect. Anyhow, let's leave our wonderful listeners. Oh, my God. Yes, we've talked too much. I let's, apologize. Let's let listeners. your wonderful listeners. Everyone's skipping past our bullshit and going well, to the interview. Well, they might do. But at any rate, I uh, would love you to uh, listen to Murray, follow him up, tell him what you He's think of He's the coolest his dude ever. Yeah, he at, really is. But I was so in love with him when I was a teenager, which, of course, he's completely oblivious to until he's listened to me say this. He said he, but he, yeah. he's heard it a few times. Oh, just, he was so cool. He's so cool. Leather jacket and smoking and he's all like smoking. just kind of, yeah, and he would just kind of, you know, stroll around and be all like, yeah, man. And I was like, oh, my God, he's the coolest dude ever. Yeah, well, he came in, we interviewed him here. So you're yeah. sitting on the Murray White seat. Yeah. And uh, people enjoy and we'll yes. speak to you afterwards. And Paul's got some moment of colour. Good everybody. We are quietly sitting in our office today on a uh, Wednesday afternoon and I'm very, very lucky to have Murray White here as a, as a guest. This is the second in-person interview we've recorded because of social distancing. I think we're safely apart, would you say we are? I believe so, Paul. <laughs> um, I haven't got a tape measure out yet, but I think we're safely apart. Um, it's wonderful to be able to look at someone and to ask some questions and to talk to them. And I've been wanting to have Murray on the podcast for a, a while. And uh, just tell me, did we interview you for the photographer interview with DJ? Yes. We did. Probably That's about right. two years ago. That's right. I know. Because I, I listened to it last year and unfortunately those archives have gotten to, to the vault. Not my vault. <laughs> But I really was very keen on um, on hearing your story and updating uh, myself on where you've been and uh, and what's happened over because I think there's some really good stories in there. But let's start out for the sake of everyone listening and ask the question: Where were you? Why were you interested in photography, and where did it all begin? Um, I've always been interested in photography. Um, I came over across a picture. This morning, um, a picture from Italy in 1956 that I remember seeing as a kid and um, loving. And I saw it today and I still love it. So I've always, I've always loved that and realised it was part of the uh, modern language of culture. And, um, but I didn't have a camera. I had a camera as a child, but I didn't have a camera again until I was in my late 20s when I was living in Japan and I decided to take advantage of being there and buy some good camera gear. Uh, Also, I was working with a fellow named Steve Gardner who was at the time a freelancer for Newsweek magazine. He and a guy called Charlie Cole who years later would win... um, Press photo- Photographer of the Year with his photograph of the Tiananmen Square guy facing down right. the tanks. That's right. Um, I've, so Steve took me under his wing and uh, encouraged me and uh, I sort of went from there. I later lived in Taiwan when I first started selling to magazines um, there was one there in particular. It was a bit of a knockoff of natural, uh, National Geographic and it was called World Geographic and they were doing exactly the kind of features that I've always liked, which are 
kind of features that take about a month to shoot if you go somewhere and just hang out for a long time rather than hard news. I've never really done hard news. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a very fast diet, the, the hard news stuff. You know, it's, it's in and out. You don't get to soak up the situation, don't understand the environment. Um, tell me, what put you in Japan in the first place? What was the... Well, I was an, an economic refugee from Australia. Oh. Yeah. That I, sounds interesting. <laughs> well, this was 83, 84, and the, uh, there was heavy unemployment in Sydney anyway where I was living. Yep. And uh, I had lost my job and, well, I'd just broken up with a girlfriend. And uh, <laughs> That's a good reason to do most things, isn't it? So things weren't looking very good. Yeah. And so I went to my brother and said, lend me two grand. I've heard you can make money in Japan teaching English. So I went there intending to stay for a few months, make some money and come back to Sydney. Um, I was there for 18 months and uh, it was my... First step into Asia where I ended up living for the next 20 or so years. So that, like, that's really the home of camera equipment. Yes. Japan is really, you know, you're either Nikon or a Canon person. Yes. And that's where it all comes from anyway. So uh, Nikon for me. <laughs> <laughs> a good. That's a join the club. I actually rang uh, Julie, the head of pro sales in Australia, yesterday. I was having a chat with her. So, you know, Japan, and I did an interview with John Swainson, actually, who was the importer of Nikon into Australia for 20 years or something okay, like that. And yeah. uh, I think there was a really, you know, the 80s, so much was happening with camera equipment and so much change and technology was starting to come into us. The fully manual idea was there, the clockworks, but electronics was were sneaking into the systems. I do remember, that it, I didn't have it, but I remember seeing uh, a friend of mine who had the first autofocus lens I'd ever seen. Wow. And that was on a Canon, but uh, it was kind of big, looked a little unwieldy, but there it was. It was this would have been 1984. Yeah. So yeah, they'd yeah. been around a while. Yeah. yeah. And, and so picking the camera up in Japan, were you, did you find yourself, like you obviously used it over there, but you weren't working, you, weren't, you hadn't found it to a way of turning it into an income yet? No, I hadn't. Yeah. So what was that step? What then, uh, like it's a big leap from getting a camera, yay, to going, I'm selling pictures now. Well, um, in Taiwan it was, like I said, I was selling, uh, I would go on holidays and do a full photo shoot. I would turn my holiday into an assignment yeah. and come back and try and sell it there, which I usually did. Um, but it was still very much part-time. Um I went to Thailand and did a shoot with um, Thai boxers. I did that with a journalist and that ended up being my first um, kind of first world sale, if you like. I sold it to um, a Penthouse Australia, mm -hmm. about an eight-page feature, mm -hmm. and I was pretty pleased with that. That's it, huge really, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I'd, I'd never been published in any let's say english-speaking world before yeah um so that was terrific but i really decided to go pro um after starting to sell into japan again i was no longer living there but i was starting to sell features in japan and i decided okay you've got to go 100 percent into this so i moved to hong kong 
Uh, Hong Kong was attractive for a couple of reasons in particular. One was that English was the language of business there yep. rather than having to struggle with either Japanese or Chinese yep. or Thai. And the other one was that Hong Kong was also a major publishing centre for magazines and newspapers and so on. Yeah, and there's so much. I mean, is it the draw, the sheer energy of these cities? Is that the draw that photographically, visually, there's just it's all there? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, look, I was used to the uh, energy of Asia by then, so it was sort of Hong Kong was nothing new, but the... Uh, the intensity of business and the way people got things done quickly and uh, the money was good there and uh, there was a, definitely a respect there too. Um, so uh, I loved it and um, there's, there's quite a pool of photographers uh, living there, um, press people uh, and journalists. So is this Western press? Western press I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah, so expats, well, all, yeah. All, yeah. But also a huge local press. Yeah. I mean, we're way outnumbering the yeah, foreigners. Yeah. But um, uh, it was I was working for the Western Press uh, for Time Inc. in particular. Um, so that was great. And it meant I travelled into China quite often. Um, and there are always stories in China. Yeah. And frankly, the whole world wants wants still and wanted then to know what's happening in China, especially if it's a kind of funky, offbeat story. Yeah. I mean, so much has happened in China uh, in, in this period that we're talking about here, 30 years, 20 years, right? We're, so, so much has happened uh, and it feels in some ways that it was a really a sleeping giant because they, they, they had a rough run in World War II and then since then it's just been they've gone from being something to a, a superpower dominating you know the world stage and, and pretty much everything and there was always that well not always but there was that feeling in the last 10 years that they're having a growing middle class yes and definitely. that you you have the everyday person uh is getting more and more and getting a nice car and wanting more and suddenly you you, you know from an outsider you look at it and go well a, a country which is effectively a a communist country that suddenly uh, the people are not so interested in communism anymore and you've got this double thing happening and, and of course Hong Kong's the crossroads of of where pretending to be a communist country but where you know we've got this big business sense so was all this sort of this rise and undercurrent was that the sort of thing that we're talking about that was attracting you to these stories out there or was that oh, oh definitely it was because uh, when I first started going to China um, You'd be in a city like Canton and the overwhelming noise on the street was the whir of bicycles and the ding, ding, ding of bicycle bells. Yep. Now, of course, there are very few bicycles and it's jammed with cars. Yeah. Um, a huge portion of the population back then were wearing what's known as the Mao suit, just the, uh, yep. the blue tunic and blue pants. Um, now everybody wears, let's call it Western fashion. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's changed completely. The cityscapes have changed completely. Uh, back then they were sort of mouldy old cities uh, with hardly a, uh, a high-rise, but now a city like Shanghai, Canton, Beijing, etc., they're 
covered in high-rises and uh, many, many more people have been lifted out of poverty mm. and uh, there's a huge uh, middle class there. And as far as being a communist country, of course, it's politically communist, but um, Deng Xiaoping was the leader who said, uh, let's do things differently, let's make it a sort of capitalist economy, guided by the government. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it's pretty, um, I think they're fairly hands-off now and it's people are making vast fortunes there. Yeah. Do you think it's it's was easier to be a photojournalist telling those stories back, you know, in the in the that time when you started there versus now? Do you think, or do you think the state control of that side of things has 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 changed? Look, there was always uh, state control. There was cert- you were only allowed to go to certain areas, certain places when I first started going in, uh, but they were still absolutely fascinating. Um, you didn't if. You were sort of officially meant to have a minder if you went in there as a press photographer, but we used to go in from Hong Kong just on tourist visas, me and journalists, so that was never really a problem. Um, Back then, too, the market was uh, quite huge as far as magazines go all around the world, so if you had a good agency, you could do a, a great story words and pictures or just pictures and they could sell into a dozen markets you know, several markets in Europe uh, England uh, America South America Australia Japan um, so uh, it's not nearly as healthy now unfortunately yeah, so you think really the magazine the, the fact is the, the lack of print publications is the is the big issue behind the perhaps a lack of ab- opportunity as being a photojournalist in these areas. Yeah, I mean, if you want to go in there, and you will still get absolutely fantastic stories, but I don't know how much you're going to get paid for them. Right, right, yeah. right. So, this, yeah, of course the stories are still there, the opportunity is still there. They're just different in the outlet for them. You see, uh, I mean, there's so many opportunities now to actually see yourself published in a non-traditional publishing way. Yes. But you feel that's really, really critical, those traditional gatekeepers like Time Magazine to actually get the the views? Or is it more about the money that you're going to get paid for working for Time as opposed to... Because you are gonna you could potentially, if you've got a most, an interesting enough story, you're going to get a, a quicker to market with your own publication through the networks and social media and that kind of stuff. But you're just not going to get the money. Yeah, you're just going to not get paid for it. <laughs> so you will no longer be a professional. Yeah. And you'll... It's, Unless you, uh, you 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 were just uh, you just couldn't carry on. Yeah. Simple as that. Because it's quite expensive to be on the road. Yeah. You have to. I mean, even in a place like China, and even back then, uh, you'd have to stay in hotels, and they charge quite a bit. Yeah. Even then, you'd. Oh my God, you know, I can stay in ho- in a luxury hotel in Thailand for half the price that I'm getting charged for this pretty ordinary place in the middle of the countryside in China. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you fly around. Um, you Well, back then you had, of course, all your film to buy and process. Um, yeah, and your rent to pay. And Yeah. I don't know, you it, means, it means for quite a d- 
detached lifestyle, doesn't it, really? It would be very hard to have a, have a whole lot of other stuff, family and everything somewhere else. You've got to be that, the wanderer, don't you, for that role? Uh, well, yes, you do. Um, it's, you know, it's a little bit like the music business where if you put out a new album, you have to go out and play concerts to promote it, oh. right? So it's that way, if, and that way you will sell more albums and you'll generate money. Um, with photojournalism, the longer you're at home, the less money you're going to make. You've got to be out there on the road shooting good stories and then come back, have your two weeks back at home and then head out again for two weeks or three weeks. Yeah. Um, it depends how much you're supported by uh, magazines um, and how often you have to work and how hard you have to work, how long it takes to shoot certain stories. Um, nowadays, of course, everyone wants stuff uh, on film as such. What I mean is television. Yeah, Television is where all these amazing images are now marketed as far as I can see. Yeah, so motion of some description. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it's kind of, it's really confusing uh, to, to work out where the world is at for this because I'd imagine that the gatekeepers of the great magazines would have had some sort of political f uh, uh, pressure on things subtly. I I'm not saying particularly you went through that but without the gatekeepers with the stories being able to go straight to uh, the, the viewers so to speak there is a chance for a less, f less filtering with the process. Um, Look that's true but how many viewers are you going to get? That's it depends I mean, on the story, doesn't it? And uh, and then I suppose if you want people to see it, it depends you've got to sensationalise it. Depends on the story and the platform. Yeah. If I put my story up on my website, I mean, not that many people are going to see it. But if Time Magazine publishes it, then <laughs> millions of people are going to see it. Yeah. And uh, sometimes that's more important. How many see it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, of course, the work's always the thing. Yeah. But if you saying something. Uh, very serious or very important or very timely and uh, then uh, the more people see it, the better. Yeah, yeah. If you're trying to do anything, any hope of change through your work. Yeah, and that's, that's I imagine, one of the big drivers is to be able to tell these big stories and be able to tell them well. Well, exactly, Paul. Um, I, um, I had... One of the things I said to myself when I started basing in Asia and shooting was, um, and this will sound a bit idealistic, but it was true is what I said to myself. I wanted to somehow bridge the cultures of Asia and the West by being able to show the West what was going on in Asia and how similar we were. Yeah. Also how different, but how interesting and how life is happening here and it's not all uh, freaky stuff. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of great people doing interesting things the same way they are in the West yeah. and it's not necessarily an exotic place. It's just as real as anywhere else, yeah. if you get my meaning. And if it was, it was just to try and help cultures understand each other. Yeah. 
Now, I don't know how far I got with that <laughs> dream, but uh, yeah, that was there as a basis when I started out. I mean, I, I would guess that no one would ever get that sorted. I mean, that's, a, that's an endless, never-ending story yes. to get done. But, you know, it's, it's got to be chipped away at. And if there's one thing I've learned through travelling, I'm surprised at how similar everybody is and how when we – often the media portrays it as, as something we should be afraid of or concerned about or, yes, you know, whoever's buying up this and whoever's taking over that and – and the idea that these these grand conspiracies that are that are pushing things this is it's quite laughable that side of it isn't it these? it is definitely is um, and it, look it's I guess the uh, there's a phrase your shared values and actually all humanity has shared values yeah. and the, I think the number one is to look after your family yeah. and no matter what anyone is doing it almost always boils down to I'm doing this for my kids. Or I'm doing this to keep you know my parents happy, or whatever. It's um, and doesn't matter where you are or what's going on. The human motivations vary quite little. It's the motivation maybe for power, for money, but uh, in the end, when it boils down to it, it's all about family for yeah. the for the average working man. Yeah. So you know, you put yourself in that situation, uh, like applying that to you. Your family's all here in Australia, but you've you pushed out to a different country to tell another country's story. Yes. Did you cop any flack from your family for not being around for that? Um, no, no direct flack. Well, there's enough of you. How many <laughs> brothers and sisters? Well, yeah, okay. I've got five <laughs> brothers and a sister. But, as, you know, it's such a big family, as far as I'm concerned, someone had to get out there and, and challenge the world, you know. Um, so were you the black sheep then? Well, I guess so. Grey sheep, maybe. <laughs> yeah, black sheep, definitely. Um, and I'm sure it caused my parents quite a bit of worry before I finally sort of got in my groove. But, um, you know, most families have one. Someone who's gotten out there yeah. and lived overseas and, you know, caused a bit of trouble and whatever. But, you know, I wasn't really a troublemaker, but... Uh, yeah, it was it was one of the difficult things about living overseas is being away from your brothers, sisters, and old friends, and that that never really goes away. Yeah, you do learn to call elsewhere home, no problem. You know, I would be going home to Hong Kong, or going home to Thailand, or going home to Japan, and uh, I had no problem thinking that, or you know, that being the absolute truth because yeah. that was my home. Yeah. Um. So you've only moved back to Australia recently, haven't you? Yes, about uh, five years ago. About five years ago, yep. okay. And where were you living before that? I lived in Thailand, in Chiang Mai, for six years. Yep. Yes, with my wife. Yep. And, uh, we had a very interesting and happy time there. Uh, previous to that, we'd been in Sydney for ten years, and before that, Hong Kong for ten years. Okay. So what pulled you back to Australia? Uh, last time? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, well, generally, why, like, making such great headway in Chiang Mai and, like, that's a very different world to living in Australia and yes. it must have been quite a shock when your choice was to be in, in Hong Kong and, and Chiang Mai, you know, to live in age, to, to be back here. So what was the what was the reason? Well, I, I returned from Hong Kong because I got, I actually got sick of living in that city. Um, uh, I still 
love Hong Kong to bits, and but I definitely needed a break. And uh, my wife was happy to come and live in Sydney too. So we went and did that, and look, it turned into ten years. And wow. then we were like, let's go back to Asia. You know? So you, sh- you shot from Australia, yes, uh, for ten years, and yep. then you you bounced back out again to. Yep. And it was much harder in Australia because when you return somewhere like this, actually, you're down the bottom of the heap again. Right. Well, not quite the bottom because you've got a good body of work behind you, but it, feel, it could feel that way, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, editors, contacts are everything, aren't they? Yeah, editors have relationships with photographers, and they're not about to let some guy necessarily just shove, you know, an old and reliable photographer out of the way and yeah. suddenly start giving him all the work. So you've yeah, you have to um, – it, it was difficult because, um, uh, of course, after 10 years in Hong Kong, I had a fantastic um, network there. Yeah. But for my own, um, my own sanity at the time, I thought, oh, God, I just need a break from this city. Yeah. It's a very intense place, Hong Kong. It's wonderful, but yeah. um, as soon as you leave your – house your flat or whatever it's the streets and they are crowded and they're loud and they are amazing but uh, it's a 24-hour city so did you ever feel threatened in your work with with these working the back blocks and in the main streets of these places never i've never i've always maybe i've been a little bit gung-ho sometimes but i've always been happy to walk down a dark lane um uh, and in Asia, I find Asia is a very safe place. Yeah. Uh, the only place I have been threatened was in Burma, and that was when it was under military dictatorship and the cops, the army there on the street, and, you know, they'll come up and sort of get in your face a bit. Yeah. Um, but uh, as far as the, the rest, uh, you know, China, Hong Kong, Japan... Thailand, Malaysia, India. I, I've been fine walking down the street anywhere. Yeah. I've never, you know, you, you, of course you use your common sense too. Yeah. But um, I ate street food and I walked the streets where normal people did and that's just the way, that's the way I go, you know. So you kind of, you, you're not, like, you, you wouldn't blend in there, right? No. You're, you're a white guy, you're a tall white guy, fair, fair hair. Um, so you know, it's you wouldn't like it's you'd stand out. Yes. So you know, you're incredibly privileged in some respect, uh, as you know, coming where you come from and all this sort of thing in these tricky places, uh, potentially tricky places. But uh, in the same breath, it's, you felt really safe and 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 could get around. Because sometimes it would be good to like feel like you could be a part of a place and disappear yeah. into it. But you well, could never really do that where you were. Well, you you can do that in Hong Kong, right? In Hong Kong, no one gives a stuff who you are. Yep. Locals, anyone. It's like, you know, uh, they are blind, uh, sort of colour blind, really, I've got to say. Yep. Um, in the early days going to China, you <laughs> that was quite difficult. You would stop to look in a window, for example, and turn around and you'd find a semicircle of people watching you and looking at what you're looking at, curious right. about. Maybe it's the first foreigner they'd ever seen. Right, right. Um, that used to happen quite a lot. Uh, you could never be anonymous there at all. Yeah. I'm not sure about really modern China. Probably, 
just depends where you are. I mean, there's deep in the middle of China, out in the back blocks and the countryside where, of course, you roll into a small town or whatever, and it's like, wow, what's this, what's this guy doing here? Yeah. Does that change the what your what's happening in front of your camera? Is, like, is this a like they say reality TV? It cannot be so because you put a camera in someone's face and everything course, changes. Yeah. So, did you find that was a? Would you feel it with that? You probably wouldn't know because you can't A B test it. <laughs> Murray's here. Murray's not here. Yeah. Well, that's it. Um, that you've got to um, you've got to learn to. I guess let. I, I used to have this theory of let people get bored with me. Right. First, there might be this like talk, 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 or look, and what are you doing? And and people are like, okay, you know. Then they get a bit bored, and that's when when they sort of stop seeing you in as much as they've got to get on with their lives. That's when you can start shooting sort of real photos. So up to them. You, were you shooting it before that? Like this is just a. I'm asking a how-to question. Uh, you had your, your camera strap over your shoulder, and you're just talking and being there. Yeah. Were you shooting at that stage? Depends on the situation. Um, uh, but no, I would I would generally roll up to, uh, say, a position, call it a position, in which I thought, okay, I can get some good shots from here for various reasons with uh, various lenses and then just let it settle down and then start lifting the camera once people were used to me. I didn't sort of walk in blazing away yeah that the longer i, I was a ca- i was a uh, photographer the less i liked just blazing away like that and getting in people's faces and spaces um and so i used to be much more careful uh, i became much more careful and respectful of what was around me and what was going on so yeah, that's that, that's something you've always got to judge case by case. Yeah. And um, but the best thing is if you can speak with someone and tell them why you're there and what you're doing, and um, you know that you might take a few shots where people are posing stupidly or holding up the peace sign, <laughs> yeah. which Asians tend to do. Like really, oh, it, not it, just my it, kids, Chinese and Japanese. Well, it all started in Japan with the uh, yeah, the peace right. sign. Yeah, yeah. And um, you just can't stop them doing it. In the end, I used to say, well, I will not take a photo if anyone's doing a peace sign. <laughs> and they like, go, what? <laughs> okay. You know, and kids looning in, in the lens and so on. But they, they get used to it, you know, they get bored and they go off and start doing this stuff. Yeah. And as you're wandering around, then they're happy for you to be there and shoot a bit. Yeah. yeah. So you've, um, just flipping back to the question about... Um, uh, working in areas that are difficult to make feel uncomfortable. You've been into North Korea and you've... Yes. Now, how, how did that work? Because I know you can't go in as a journalist easily. What was the the guys that you went or the premise that you went in and what did you end up doing? I went in as a school teacher. <laughs> yes. They, Hang on, uh, is there a fake <laughs> school teacher? Well, I didn't have to show my school teacher card or anything, but... Uh, you were teaching English to Japanese well, earlier in your career? Several years before that, yeah. Um but, you know, when you're filling out the uh, visa application form and they say, what, what do you do? Of course, you don't put journalist. And you, it's easy, very easy just to put teacher. This is before websites? They weren't Googling everybody? No, no websites, nothing, you know. Do you think that would be hard these days if you were... 
Because uh, you just like I'm surely the border control would pop into the Google machine and look at the name of yeah I think so because yeah. you would apply for a visa months before would that be the case um, with North Korea at the time uh, it was only about two weeks before and I went in with a travel company right. they they I didn't organise it completely independently in yep. fact I saw an ad in the paper saying there's a few places left for a North Korean trip. Were you in Chiang Mai at the time? No, no, I was in Hong Kong. Hong Kong, right. So I called up my agent in Paris and I said, do you want me to go to North Korea? And they were like, yes, yeah, please. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I said, okay, send me some money. And anyway, I went there and um, I was in a very small group of only three people, including myself, but we had... Uh, two minders. One was a driver and the other one was the interpreter. And they no doubt watch each other <laughs> to right. make sure each, each other behave. Yeah. Uh, my interpreter was uh, incredible. He's probably the best speaker of English as a second language I've ever heard. Wow. And he had never left Korea. Yeah. Um, very skilled man, but a dislikable person. Why, uh, why so? Uh, he just, you get really, in North Korea, you get really sick of just hearing the party line absolutely nonstop about... Well, he's being watched. I mean, you would assume that's why you said the driver's watching him or... Yep. Uh, but, you know, you hear about the great leader and the dear leader and uh, it's just, it's completely set in stone. And for a while, it's, that's kind of interesting, you know. Well, it's curious, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's very curious. But then you you start getting bloody sick of it, frankly. Yeah. And uh, and he will be. He started questioning whether I was a teacher <laughs> <laughs> because of the way I was shooting. Because I was shooting like a pro, you know. I had, right, a, right. I had a camera bag with a couple of cameras and. Three oh, so you weren't careful. You didn't go and swap your gear out for for a little. Was this early di early <laughs> digital? Was it film? No, no, it was film. So what we you bought your. What Nikon did you have with you? I had a couple of Nikons. I had uh, uh, FE2 and an FM. Right, I which I liked. Good, simple Nikons. Beautiful. And uh, he would <laughs> he would look at me and say, "You're a professional, aren't you?" And I said, "No, no, no, no. I'm just a keen amateur. Enthusiastic. Yes, I'm an enthusiast. <laughs> a keen amateur. I love photography. Yeah, yeah. Two and bodies is the giveaway, I reckon. Yeah, yeah." And also getting down and shooting up and yeah, and yeah. kind of swapping your lenses really quickly and yeah. you know he loading film with one hand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This guy was not stupid at all. I mean, I'm I'm sure he'd he'd, he'd sort of looked after like you know, photographers, photojournalists before who were in there legally, but uh, he could tell. But we just played that little game. Yeah, I was a keen amateur. Um. <laughs> So, did you have yeah. to keep? Did he ask once or many times? Uh, three or four times. Did you feel uncomfortable? Like as I, I asked you, did you ever feel afraid before? Were you afraid in North Korea? Not at all. No. Wow, that's um, cool. It is the place is so locked down, so controlled that there's there's almost no situation you can get in where you're going to get in trouble. So not not just they detain you because you're. A, Photographer and shooting not, and not a teacher and not a teacher <laughs> like, well theoretically possible, but I 
didn't give that a whole lot of thought. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're getting a little bit more information. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, all right, if you do find out, it'll kick me out. And I just, we, the worst thing about getting kicked out would be if they took your film. Took your film. Yeah. yeah. So that never happened and it was all good. Yeah. Because yeah, a great series of pictures from yeah. there. I, yeah. I mean, I can see, I can see that you were a tourist in that situation. I can see. In the pictures, this is not. If you, especially if you look at all, all your other work, um, there is a difference that there is a restraint to it. But it also, uh, I've not seen pictures like it from there, and I found them, you know, uh, quite a great insight into the place. That sort of a fabulous facade, a little bit like you go into a, a playhouse and you look at the the sets there, and then you go around the back and you see the timber that holds it up and the canvas and the paint. And yeah, the, indeed. Um, and look, being restricted, uh, and this has been said before by many sort of creative types, but the more restrictions you have, the more you have to use your imagination. Yep. So um, look, we were taken, we were given our schedule and we were taken to places and told how long we'd be there and told what we can and what we cannot shoot. And um, So within that those strictures then you look for a way to make it interesting to make it visually interesting and um yeah it worked I'm, I'm i'm really pleased with that shoot yeah when i look back on it and gee it's a long time ago now it's 25 years ago gosh is it really yep and the time that i was there i found out afterwards was uh north korea was in a famine uh but, of course, this was hidden from us. Right. And we were in Pyongyang mostly, but we went down to the border. Uh, fascinating seeing that famous 38th parallel and you're looking from the other side. Wow. From what you usually see on the news. Yeah. Um, and getting lectured by army guys um, about you know the war and the fact that where are you from? From Australia. Oh, you had troops here. You had so many troops and rah, 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 and you are a capitalist rotor sort of thing. Really? <laughs> okay. Sorry, I asked. Sorry, um, my bad. Yes. <laughs> um, and there are other things too are quite interesting. I remember on the way back to Pyongyang from the border, we stayed in a, a town called Kaesong and we stayed in a, um, a traditional guest house, which was very nice. But uh, I remember leaving the guest house to go for a walk and uh, there was a kid there, probably 18, 20 years old, and he was sitting at a tripod and painting a picture. And he took no notice of me, didn't even look at me, and I stopped and I looked at his painting and I looked at him and he was sort of studiously working away there and I moved on and came back. Now, I've seen him at least twice more in documentaries and other photo shoots. Oh, wow. So he is the prop. Wow. He's a prop that they use every time that Westerners stay at this place. Look, here's a kid just, this is all normal life. Gosh. We were taken to a hospital in Pyongyang and the hospital was empty of patients. Well, maybe a couple of patients there, but empty of doctors and patients, it seemed, and all equipment. But the facade was that this was... This hospital was still running and it was the best hospital in Korea and, you know, there are no patients because no one's sick yeah. kind of thing. Um, there were some babies there and there, were, there was a maternity area. Some nice hospital stuff. Yeah, but 
most of it we would go into an area and then people would be posing there in uh, you know doctor's gear and so on and pretend yeah, yeah. to be busy uh, it's kind of wild um you didn't pick up on that maybe immediately but then pretty soon you go hold it you're not actually doing anything and why are you just standing here in a group and there's nothing else in right. this lab? So do you think for the average tourist it would have been, or was it just blatantly obvious that everyone's playing a game? Um, well, not that blatant because they're pretty good at it. But, but how do you hide a famine? Like, <laughs> Well, you hide a famine by the, the population of Pyongyang is a control population and you're only allowed to live there if you're sort of invited to live there. Right. Um so it's the best and brightest. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's kind of reward is to live there. But if you went out into the countrysides at that time, it was very bleak. It yeah. Was very, very bad. Um, so, uh, but this is only something that I found out later. Wow. Through documentaries and so on. Yeah. <coughs> and did you, is, is there a, a, are there people that have been in shot in North Korea that, that you know that you can connect with. Uh, is there do people talk about their time there amongst you know photojournalists, journalists that kind of stuff, or is it is it such a rare thing that you don't? Because I could just imagine there'd be great opportunity to compare notes. Uh, Look, I've never actually done that, yeah. frankly. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, I think almost everybody gets the same experience, and I'm always interested to look at someone's shoot to think what did they get out of North Korea because <laughs> I know exactly what happened to them. Yeah. Uh, every BBC documentary I watch that says we get unprecedented access here in North Korea, yeah. they all get exactly the same as the previous yeah. documentary crew and the documentary crew that's coming up. And I have been to these places where they're shooting and I know exactly, I mean, it hasn't changed in 25 years. It's, uh, it's quite fascinating. Wow. So uh, if you go in there, you... What would what you would do and see would be probably almost exactly the same as what I saw and did, and you'd be treated the same way and probably stay in the same hotels. Um, but what you bring out of it is what's interesting for me, uh, not really what happened when you were there. Yeah, I suppose in reflection, it's yeah. that's all. It's interesting. Uh, there's no other place like it on Earth. You've not felt <laughs> anything like that. No, nowhere. Um, the other place I. I liked going to because it was sort of politically really out there. Was Burma right at the time, and it was sort of wacky Southeast Asian Burma, which was a socialist paradise meant to be, but you know the third poorest country in the world. Yeah. Um, uh, the fantastic uh, Rangoon, the uh, old capital. The it's a British colonial city, absolute colonial gem. Um, but just completely worn down um, and broken. But absolutely beautiful people. And it, that was always a great pleasure going there, being around the Burmese, and just their way. But a vicious government um, that you still had to be careful, no matter how nice the people were. I remember stopping and talking with a guy on the, who was selling stuff on the street. He was actually selling a bit of hardware. And he, and he said to me, look, please don't talk to me for too long because if you talk to me for more than a few minutes, then as soon as you go, then the secret police are going to 
the intelligence guys are going to come here. Gosh. They're going to take me away and say, what were you talking to that foreigner about? Why were you talking to him for so long? I'm like, okay, I understand. I moved on. That was a really great lesson for me. Yeah. Don't. Yeah, put the locals in danger. It's yeah. Don't put the locals in danger. Yeah. Um, Is it easy uh, easy to get in and out of? Like you said, North Korea was, you got in. And, I mean, I, I can't imagine uh, North Korea's easier or harder to get in than it's ever been. It seems to be exactly the same. Yeah. Nothing much has happened. But, but you know, as far as Burma, was that an easy place to get into and out of? Uh, it was a little bit tricky. Um Especially if they thought you were a journalist. Any uh, sense of it now and, and that part of the world? Well, I haven't been back there since for a while, probably about 10 years, but I think it's quite easy. It's yeah. sort of opened up. Opened up, Hugely yeah. now yeah, yeah. compared to before. Um, yeah, so um, it's... But it's an out there place. At at the time, I liked going to these uh, radical places yeah. um, rather than sort of the Blumanji middle, even though it's fascinating, but it's like, get yeah. to North Korea. The get, stories get are get much to, smaller in those middle places, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, and, of course, the middle of the world is what's reading these stories and they don't always need to hear a story about themselves. Yeah. They want to hear about other parts of the world. So do you feel, do you feel it's all... Like softening off and homogenizing all these these countries and becoming very much the same for, because of media and all that. Well, like I was saying before, when I first went to China, it was all bicycles and mouse suits. But now it's all BMWs. It's a BMWs, Mercs, and uh, you know, nice Western clothes. So uh, a place like Thailand has a lot of Western influence. It's still, you know, very unique. Thailand, but it's it's full of Seven uh, Elevens, and uh, I mean, full of Seven Elevens. Really? Yep. And uh, something K about that business model must be good. <laughs> oh yeah. But what K have they displaced? Do you think is it? This, it's, not a it's very unfortunate because they've displaced the little corner shop, just like here with our Greek delis and. Yep. Right. That's right. And many, I mean, there's, there's quite a few of the corner shops left, but. That was all there was before, and yeah. it was fantastic. They were kind of really old-fashioned places. Now, the, the Thais are, you know, young Thais are modern thinkers, and like they like going into a 7-Eleven, and they know exactly what they're going to get. It's kind of the McDonald's model. Yeah. You go into 7-Eleven, anywhere in Thailand, you know what's going to be there, yeah. and what they've got and how much it is. And that has worked. Yeah. Um, but also, they are fast-food fanatics too, the Thais. Oh, really? So... Lots of McDonald's. But street food is always massive. Yeah. And it was always quick. Yes. So they've just swapped out interesting Kwe Chow for... Yeah. <laughs> for no, well, they still have a lot of, you know, heaps. And, you know, the majority is Thai street food, but yeah. also um, uh, KFC and Pizza Hut and et cetera. You can't walk past them without... They're, they'll all be packed as well. So, but you go somewhere like, uh, say, Vietnam... I love going to Vietnam nowadays because there's hardly any of that. I think they've got KFC, but there's almost no big Western chains yeah. in there. Yeah. And also Vietnam has no uh, major advertising from Western chains. Right. So you fly out of, say, Ho Chi Minh City back to Bangkok and suddenly it's huge Coke signs and McDonald's yeah, yeah. advertising billboards and... So on and so on. and you realize, oh, that's right. I haven't seen any for a few weeks because I was in Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. Um, they still have um, propaganda billboards there, which are kind of cool. Wow. 
wow, very old old style, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, with the holding, the I mean, photographically, that's what's that's what we want. Yes, we don't want to see McDonald's signs in the background, no. do we? Yeah, and, you know, and unless you're going for that sort of hoary old shot of uh, you know someone in a conical hat and traditional clothes, you know, yes. munching into a burger, and it's like, yeah, okay, yeah, right, you know, <laughs> the old and the new. Um, well, that's yeah, it's incredible. I mean, there's not there's not much left around the world for that sort of stuff. I mean, yeah. Have you did you find yourself in in places like Tibet and did you find yourself sort of out in those parts of the world? Unfortunately, I never got to Tibet. Um, I wish I had, of course. Yep. It's uh, getting complicated again. Yes, no doubt. Um, I think that waxes and wanes how easily you can get in there, yeah. depending on what's happening there and how much controversy is going on. Yeah. Really, the big. It's probably more difficult to get into Western China now, um, into Urumqi and places like that, where there is uh, a perceived problem with the Uyghurs and the concentration or re-education camps, whatever they're called. That's the bigger news than Tibet right now. You know, Tibet's kind of under the radar at the moment. Yeah. Do you get a sense that there's photographers covering the Uyghurs problem, or is that all? There have been. I haven't seen particularly recent shoots out of there. But um, that is the sort of place where if, you, if I went there tomorrow hoping to shoot the Uyghurs, then I would definitely uh, get myself a Chinese minder and I would just sort of go with the government program on that yeah, uh, and kind of shoot around it, if you know what I mean. If you went in there trying to sneak around and getting, yeah. getting controversial shots... You'd be in trouble very quickly. Yeah, yeah. You know, they are not stupid, mate. Yeah, um, not for a moment are they stupid. Yeah. Um, so sometimes it's just it's best to go with the authorities. Yeah. And uh, then you kind of shoot around it and go, well, this is what this is the plastic image that I, you know, we are being presented with, and you sort of yeah. knowingly present the plastic image, kind of not ironically, but as a saying here's here's the um here's the filter that they're trying to put in front of reality see how obvious yeah. it is and yeah yeah it's, 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 it's like being in pyongyang where everyone was kind of well fed and well dressed <laughs> but the reality for most of the country at that time was starvation well i we don't know what it is now we no. can only assume that it's not that different yeah uh, i mean um, although they're not in a famine but um who knows, really? Yeah, just you just hope not. Um, so, so tell me what after after you found yourself in Chiang Mai and working there, what then brought you back to Australia for the second time? Uh, the second time, uh, I came back for health reasons. So, I've remained here for health reasons too. Yep. So, uh, but has that stopped you working? Yeah, it has really, um, so, which is unfortunate. But it hasn't stopped me uh, shooting for myself, and it hasn't stopped me editing and uh, loving photography. Yep. Um, I just call myself retired now, right. which is fine. <laughs> I haven't heard that out of your mouth yet. Yep, mate. I'm retired. <laughs> You've got to pay me big to get me out of retirement, man. Ten thousand dollars a day is Naomi <laughs> would say. Uh, yeah. Um, so, uh, so you're shooting for yourself, yes. And um, I, over the last few years, we've seen some 
some fabulous work. I, I noticed there's some stuff you started. I, I think it was in Chiang Mai, a project where you're shooting from uh, Waterfield gutters. Yes. Uh, and playing with a light that's coming off. And look, there is a, a, a bit of a journalistic feel, but an otherworldliness too yeah. with this stuff. I discovered something there that was absolutely nothing to do with photojournalism and, and everything to do with uh, the camera. And uh, I say that because the, the images that I was getting were something you could never, ever see with the naked eye. Yep. And the only way that you could get an image like this was through a lens and... Uh, a particular lens on a partic on my particular camera at a particular angle in a particular situation would produce this uh, very abstract image, mm. and I learned to control those images. I I shot it so many times that and so many different places, trying to vary it a little and learning and learning, that I managed to control the abstraction, which was really satisfying and really good and I've come out with some uh, I think quite original work mm. um, but I guess what I do love about it is that some of it's almost impossible to even imagine let alone see you simply cannot see that with the human eye mm. um, it's the antithesis of what we talk about with photography yes where we're kind of grabbing something we see yeah um, and you're conjuring something just because of the issues with the system yeah <laughs> so without that without that particular lens then that, that you wouldn't be able to get that image without that um, aperture it, it wouldn't appear that way and without the light it wouldn't you know there's certain lighting that you have to use and yeah it was a real I, I loved it because yeah. honestly my first love is art right uh, from a kid and I've always been interested in art and therefore photography was part of that. And So that fed your photography, like that was your foundation? Yes. Um, um, I said, I should have said, in my own mind I was trying to produce, uh, uh, when I was shooting for mags, a kind of artistic uh, news. Mm -hmm. So a, a news full of, a news shot full of information or a, but... Uh, make it as artful as possible yeah, yeah. Um, rather than just straightforward. So look, for a lot of my inspiration, when I would get down on inspiration, going, uh, uh, you know, I would often uh, go to painting galleries and uh, walk around in galleries looking at paintings because um, then I would, that would definitely uh, directly influence my photography through uh, the combinations of colours that you see, shapes, angles, lines, composition, and you'd go, yeah, okay. So, and you'd be able to translate that yep. into your photography. Um, you get uh, some purely almost photographic painters, um, which I find a bit boring because it's just... Yeah. Technically brilliant, but you know, yeah. well, I mean, it's it's technically incredible, but yeah, yeah what's the point? What's yeah. happening here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd rather something far more abstract. And, yeah, um, you can use that abstraction into your photography. Yeah, um, you know, you can shooting people, shooting scenes, whatever. You just 
It's often quite good to sort of blur your eyes a little when you're looking at a scene and just see the colours and shapes and then work it out and then open them more and get it sharp. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's... Uh, it's always an inspiration going into a gallery and it, it can really lift your work, I reckon. Yeah, I can see you spend a bit of time in both the museum and the art gallery here and because yes. you know, I can see that you're popping in and out. Uh, and um, and that stuff is invaluable. And you said curation is something that that you've been enjoying and I suppose curation is a, is a what's my favourite my favourite idea that we can look back on either our work or others' work and start to draw themes out of it and put stuff, you know, categorise and sort and understand the work differently. So you've taken this time to get back into your archive and, and look at it differently, have you? Oh, definitely. Um, it's, you know, maybe you're older and wiser. or you're certainly Different, just different. Yeah, you're you know? older and, and looking at things differently. Yeah. Um, and it's great to come up with a theme and, and rearrange and go, oh, okay, right. And I'd never seen that theme before. Yeah. Uh, you have all the building blocks for it, but you just didn't know what kind of house you were going to build, you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's a lot of fun. It's something. Do you, get a, do you get a sense the change of importance of work and imagery as time goes by? Do you get a sense that um, something you, did, you dismissed suddenly is now really important? Or do you feel that's the work at the time you kind of know that you've done something that it kind of resonates and sticks with you? Uh, because sometimes when you're digging back, you see things and you start putting stories together that are outside uh, what you originally intended and what you originally saw. Uh, definitely. It's, it's not, maybe not so much stories, but definitely images yeah. that I'd bypassed in the previous years. And then I'd, I'd look at one and go, God, why didn't, why didn't I see that before? <laughs> you know, it's... And I'll, I'll come up with a, a new, almost a new favourite out of out of something that I've ignored for years. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, yeah, always keep your old images. That's fabulous. <laughs> That's fabulous. And look, you you in some ways you're incredibly lucky to uh, to have this time to go through the work, yes. but without getting dragged into other work. That's um, right. A lot of people, you know, they they come through their life and they're just barreling along, and you know, they just leave their ability to to sort the stuff out, but you've actually had some time to sort it out. So this is all health-related, right, you, the time yes, you've had? Yes, And how, how are you? Are you okay? Uh, I'm doing very well. I am... Um, I'm a very successful guinea pig for <laughs> <laughs> Big Pharma. Oh, and awesome. Yes, happy to Someone be that way. Someone has to be. Yes, happy to be that way. Oh. Um, so, uh, but, yeah, the... The uh, life of contemplation is, is great. I love it. Oh, I'm so impressed. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I'm, I'm so grateful. It's a wonderful story. Uh, we come to the end of our hour. Um, I'm so glad we got to talk about this, this concept of, of time to spend with your work. Uh, a lot of people, I think there's an addiction to shooting and an addiction to making. And there is more to something than getting the picture. There is a... There's something. There's more to be done with the pictures. There's more to to come out of them afterwards. There's more to come through reflection. Uh, what are you going to do next? Like, what's your what's your next plan? My next plan is uh, I'm going to. I, I I've been doing quite a lot of well, uh, night photography, right? Which I like a lot. I like 
I like shooting into the sun and shooting when it's dark. Put it that way. I like breaking the rules. Break those rules and yep. go the opposite way that you meant to. So um, I've got a trip um, into country coastal South Australia coming up where I will bring my tripod and my trusty old cameras and um, shoot stuff at night um, and close-ups of uh, it'll be it won't be people I don't think um, I don't shoot so many people nowadays um, we know people are awful anyway don't they yeah you know <laughs> they're a bit boring <laughs> you know? uh, so uh, we'll see what I bring back from that oh yeah. can't wait can't wait well, thanks, Murray. Thanks for your time. Uh, absolute pleasure, Paul. And so, how about that, Murray White? Mate? How would you like to go to North Korea? Not at all. Well, you know, That'd I mean, Murray's capacity to kind of do whatever Murray does like, in terms of travel, like where he can, li- where he lives, and like some of those stories, I was like, uh, no. No, I'm not participating in any of this. This is all terribly scary and icky. And I'm like super high maintenance. We know this. I don't even go camping in South Australia, let alone, oh, we'll just, you know, go to this frightening country where they could throw you in the prison for having a camera. Yeah. Nah. Yeah. Well, I was nah, impressed. I would, I'd like to go to North Korea. and I, I said Really? Like, yeah, I'm kind of curious because I feel like it would be a super safe place to be. Do I don't, you? I don't th- I'm not going to be a political they took prisoner. took that dude and like flicked him into prison and tortured him yeah, and well then like, he bloody died and they shipped him back in a There's tube. people going in and out of there all the time, right, as tourists. Oh, no. And you get to see a limited amount of it. I think such it a white boy thing to say. Yeah, that's it. Like I thought it was interesting that you called it, you, you talked to him about that, like, you know, that sometimes it would be a benefit, sometimes it would be a deficit being, you know, rich white boy yeah. cruising around. Well, that was the thing. I, I, I mean, his definitions from a you know, big family – uh, but he's super aware of his privilege in a way that I think most men, certainly of his era and certainly of his background, are not aware. Um, and he has a level of compassion and and absolutely and empathy towards he's super the woke. people he's he's around. Yeah, yeah, very he's woke. very impressive That's on that cool. front. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I think there's always I. I think there's a, for me it's complicated because I am really high maintenance and a fraidy cat when it comes to travel, yeah. but also because I'm a woman and therefore I'm in a more dangerous position. But then I'm a white woman, which makes me a lot safer in a lot of ways. Like I can do a lot of things that a lot of people can't do. So I think you'd Megan your way around there. I think everyone would love you. You'd have your own cult. Soon. That's never been an issue for me. Everyone loving me. It's not really <laughs> my problem. It's more everyone being scared shitless of me and running away. <laughs> so your moment of colour, you ready for it? Oh, fuck me. Okay, yes, I'm ready for well, it. Well, you know, we're talking about uh, managing colour in software. I thought we'd just have a quick hello about Lightroom. Because oh. we, we scraped on the edge Fucking of... Fucking Lightroom. We scraped... You've got to talk into the mic, by the way. Um, can I snore into the no, mic you while you talk about Lightroom and <laughs> I cry? You never snore. No, I only meant to mention it because it came up last week that you said... You asked about the difference in Lightroom and Photoshop. And one thing I was going to mention that I didn't say so is... You know, there's uh, several modules in Lightroom. There's a develop where you actually do the work on the pictures. But there's a library module where you do the edit, the organising. Mm-hmm. Just keywording and sure. folderising and I don't folder. faces. I don't know how to do any of that. Yeah, I know. But when you're in there, people go when they're looking at the images and then they go, oh, that's the, uh, that's the image I'm looking at. But the thing is... <laughs> that's the uh, image yeah, I'm looking at. Well, people expect what they're seeing in Lightroom to be the... 
colour on the image. And what they don't realise is Lightroom has its own colour space. When you're in the library module or when you're in the develop module, uh, but if you haven't turned on soft proofing, you're looking at all the... But hang on, you said soft proofing's bullshit. Uh, yeah, it is. No, it's not bullshit. Well, I you haven't said it before on this podcast, but you're saying it right now because I just said it and you Are you agreed. recording it? No, I'm just looking at my phone. Okay, well, you're, you're looking at your phone. <laughs> 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 fucking moment of colour and fucking Lightroom. I know, I know, I know, I know. I, everybody who's listening no, to this already knows no, Lightroom. People, they're all like flicking with their special buttons People and need shit. to know when they're comparing their picture between what they see in the library module and Lightroom or even the, the develop module and basically and what they're seeing in Photoshop, it's quite, quite often different. Because Isn't there that moment where you open it to edit in Photoshop and it says, do you want to edit copy? Do you want to edit with original. Lightroom changes? Yeah. Do you yep. want to edit the original? Is that what you mean? No. Right. No. I mean, if you open the that, same... Did you hear what I just said? Yeah. That's it. That's that is it. the grand sum total of my experience in Lightroom. I open it, I fuck with it, I shut it. I okay. export, that's all I know. I know what you mean. So when you're looking at a picture in Lightroom, you're looking at it in its own color space, which Lightroom has developed, which is not Pro Photo RGB. It's not Adobe RGB. It's not SRGB. Are you kidding? It's another color space. It's what actually, dumb fucks would do that? It's actually a similar size to Pro Photo RGB. It's massive. Why? Well, they do that because you need some color space to see an image in. Like you need some boundary. Yeah, but if they just chose one that well, was no, widely available. Yeah, well, that's right. They they've, just made some shit up. Yes. Classic Adobe. So, Classic. so quite often you're seeing something in the library module and by the time you get it through to Photoshop, which is constrained to, you know, really constrained to a color space, um, like you say, it's Adobe RGB. So you open the image and you leave it, you convert it to Adobe RGB. It's constrained. This is These are unconstrained. So often you're seeing things which have got brighter colors and different contrasts and everything. It's very frustrating. If you want to use, this is all I'm going to say to tell you guys oh and girls to do. Go on to the, if you want to look at an image in, in, and compare it to the image in Photoshop and say, do they look the same? Go to the develop module and turn on soft proofing and choose the profile to be the same one as in Photoshop. So if it's Adobe RGB, choose Adobe. Uh -huh. So that um, when I say soft proofing, I'm not saying choose a printer profile to simulate what it's going to look like in print. That's where I think soft proofing sucks a bit and is something to be wary about and maybe we can talk about that yes because there's a lot of people new but clients yes. who will come to us yeah. and they'll go please give me your blah, 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 yeah, yeah. So, so i can soft proof and then you yeah. go uh how about no and you send them to a page on our website with a whole lot of other we shit we've got all the color. other profiles there and they can they can download them and use them we don't stop people from doing it but people it's a false it's a false economy people think it's this the the magic bullet that'll solve all of the their problems and there's no magic bullet like that kind of stuff. So we'll we'll talk about that in a future episode. But all I wanted to say is the soft proofing in Lightroom where you can just proof within a color space like Adobe RGB or sRGB, that will give you a view of the file in color the same as Photoshop. Everything else is in Lightroom's own wacky color space, uh, then constrained by your own monitor profile beyond that or fed through your monitor profile. So, you know, don't look at it, everything in Lightroom and... Uh, I mean, you can when you're in develop module, trust the view you're seeing there when you're editing. That's pretty cool. But if you want to compare it with what you're seeing in Photoshop and use that comparison, you've got to turn soft proofing on and choose your same profile that you haven't cut set up in in Photoshop, Adobe RGB or sRGB. Uh, I'm not saying you can't edit without that off in develop module. And in develop module, when you open it, it renders a brand new preview. And then it make you make your Lightroom adjustments. It's it's reliable, but it is much broader than what's printable and what's typically in Photoshop 
so there you go. That's your moment of colour. Wow. Are you now still asleep or have you woken up? <clears throat> Sorry, what did you say? <laughs> uh, I love you, darling. I love you too. Do you know what I love about you what? right now this second the most? What's that? That I don't have to deal with 98% of what you just said. Yeah, I know. But you do get people asking you. And when you're out in no, the No, I don't. No one asks me. No one No one is ever fooled by my mass hypnosis to think that I know jack shit about Lightroom. Okay. No one. They would all expect you to know. But I don't think anyone's sitting around going, Kate's really feeling the software. She's like, software queen. <laughs> nope. I barely get around my iPhone. My kid still has to come and fix a whole lot of shit every now and then. I am already much older than you when it comes to tech. You're like a nerd boy, young, oh. hot nerd boy. Oh, I'm like a dopey nice. old lady. I'm like a <laughs> nana, just flicking, enlarging the font on my bloody, you know, New York Times subscription, which I'll have you know, you can't do. You can't enlarge the font on the New York Times app. How do you need to enlarge your font? Because you can't I glasses. can't fucking read it. You need your glasses. No, it's just sometimes when I wake up very early in the morning and I want to read some juicy shit about how horrible Trump is, I find it difficult to open my eyes because I'm very old. Did we talk about this already? Honey, you're not old. I am very – my eyeballs are very tired from looking at hey, a lot of things. Hey, turns out you need to look at red light. Fuck yeah. Did you – when's that the moment of hey, goddamn colour? Let me look at red light. Oh, red right. light and not the red light district. Why can't we go there? <laughs> Is that your excuse for looking at the red lights? Yes, that's it. You have to look at boobies in the red light. Let's leave these nice people alone, all right? (laughs) I said boobies. You said boobies. Let's leave these nice people alone, okay? All right. And who, hey, who mentioned us on their their video? Zach Arias. Okay, I'm looking for the Zach bump. Give me some fucking Zach bump. Thank you, Zach. Thank you, whoever fed Zach. He's not going to listen now because I did the swears. Oh. Well, he, I don't know. Is he a non swearer? I feel I like he's, he's a non swearer. He's, he's American and they're all a bit gentle. Yeah. No, he's a cool dude. Um, yeah. Thank you for listening, everyone. That was yes, our episode 15, the Atkins team. And out. and hang on, no. Hang on, I want to go out. No, fuck no, we're not doing out. I would like to say the following Everyone in Melbourne, yes. I am speaking now on behalf of the rest of Australia. Fuck you. I almost sprayed the water. I am <laughs> speaking on behalf of the rest what of Australia because I, yeah, well, I'm doing a better job than he is. Anyway, I, I shut up. We're not having that discussion. I'm speaking on behalf of the rest of Australia because Melbourne is locking down for all of us. They're locking down to stop it from spreading to the rest of Australia. Thank you, Melbourne. And we should be grateful and we should support them. And I think we should all have like adopt a Melbourneian, adopt a Victorian and we can send them like a love package or something of shit they can't get because they're staying in their houses with masks on. And because they are stopping it from going everywhere else for six fucking weeks, which is just like hell. And I can see it's about to happen in Sydney as well. And you know, it, they're going to lock down for all of us as well. And so we we as Australians need to recognise that that's what's happening Thank and you, not take a dump on, on Melbourne and say they're all a bunch of filthy pigs or any of that kind of crap and not, I did like and the not say why would you want to go to Melbourne anyway. No, I love Melbourne. I, I really love, though, the meme of the Spice Girls where 
they were saying Victoria was phoning it in, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone was doing a great job, but Victoria was always phoning it in. No, Victoria we're not doing that. Girls no, down. we're grateful. Yes, we are. And we do love Melbourne. We and love and Melbourne place for staying home and being bored and watching Netflix and eating boring food for the 15th time. And I, for one, would really dearly like to be able to send something to somebody in Melbourne. Well, let's send something to DJ. Oh, DJ's in Geelong and he's fine rolling around in his no one's got anything in Geelongedness. <laughs> I want someone in a hot spot who needs like, I don't know. Emily Black. Fucking Let's send Emily Black baby somewhere. formula or something. Send My bleeding Black. heart requires someone to help. Okay, okay I've Let's talked say for goodbye. too long. I love you, 15. Victoria. See you. See you, bye. Bye.